Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, cookbook author Mariana Velasquez invites us on a culinary tour of Colombia, including the street food in Bogota, the magical river that inspired Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and the influence of Middle Eastern ingredients on Colombian cuisine. We also hear about other traditions that have endured, including a passion for radio. In rural towns and smaller towns, people still go home for lunch. People still have a siesta, they take a nap after eating. But Colombia is changing slowly. My husband works in radio, and we always talk about how the power of radio continues to be huge in our country because there's places where literally, like, TV signal is hard to get. Later on, Adam Gopnik considers adopting new dining habits, and we learn a recipe for potato salad dressed in chili oil. But first, it's my interview with graphic designer Yiying Lu. You may already be familiar with some of her work. She's the creator of many food-based emojis, including the dumpling, the fortune cookie, the takeout box, chopsticks, and a cup of boba tea. Yiying, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. So emojis obviously came from Japan. How did they get started and what were some of the early emojis like? So the word emoji, it's the English pronunciation of the Japanese emoji. Literally, the translation is drawing characters. Uh, obviously, the pictorial language itself date way back but the um, idea of emoji is really kind of started in 1999. And it was um, designed originally from Docomo, which is a Japanese communication company, kind of in the 8-bit fashion. And later on, because we have Apple smartphones and with more colors, that's how we get the emoji we're using today. So I think I sort of knew this but didn't believe it, where there's this tiny group of people, like 20 people, who vote on emojis. Uh, and it's just this really strange medieval process. So, <laughs> so I mean, how, who picks these people? Do they pick themselves? Do they meet in a secret room? I mean, how does it work? It is kind of a secret room if you're really kind of looking at it. And it is indeed a group of people called the Unico Consortium, which is a nonprofit that's uh, in Silicon Valley. And I think it's around uh, 20 different organizations from larger tech company, um, or Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, to government of Oman. And uh, yeah, it was just really fascinating that uh, you do have these people deciding the keyboard that billions of people are using. So talk to us about the first emoji you did, the dumpling. Uh, what was the process like? It was quite a funny story because in 2015, I moved to San Francisco from Sydney, Australia. And it just so happened that my friend, Jenny Lee 
also moved to San Francisco in the same year. So we met up for dumplings. She texted me a photo of the potsticker dumplings, and I was trying to reply her with a dumpling emoji, only found out that there was no dumpling emoji on my phone. So I just went back to my desk and I was like, well, I'm a designer. I can probably do something about it. So I just designed the very first version of the dumpling emoji, which is a sort of empanada looking with the blinking hard eye uh, mm. dumpling. It's personified. And uh, it was actually inspired by the poop emoji, just so you know. Um, and I sent it back to <laughs> that, her. That's always <laughs> inspirational, of course. Yeah. Yes, it is yeah. the circle of life, right? Huh. <laughs> that's true. Well, I sent it to her. She liked it. She's like, this is really great. We should probably submit it to the consortium. And so Jennifer did some research, find out the Unicorn Consortium, and, and then we kind of submit the design and the proposal to them. So, so that didn't work out, though, right, that first design? They came back to me. They said, it will be better if we design it in a way that is more generic because most of the food emojis doesn't have facial expression on it. And so I went back and I redesigned it after eating many more dumplings. And the inspiration was sort of coming from a more sort of crescent moon design style, mm-hmm. uh, simply because, you know, other parts of the world, like the empanadas, the pierogies, um, the palminis, they all have the similar uh, half moon style. So it's more universal than the bow shape. I kind of like your first one, though, with the hard eyes. I mean, it's it's anthropomorphic, you know, which I like. But anyway. I like it, too. I mean, how could you not like a smiling, happy dumpling? I agree. Well, here's the thing that I found. It was quite fascinating. When I was uh, visiting Shanghai, which is my hometown, in 2017, I was working on a project to personify the dumplings into dumpling characters, kind of an extension of the initial the hard-eyed dumpling emoji that I designed. And one of my colleagues was asking me a question about what is the origin of wonton, which is the soup dumpling. So I did some research, and it was actually originated from the Chinese character Dun, meaning primordial chaos. So <laughs> Explain to me primordial chaos, really? Yeah, so the primordial chaos is the state of chaos before the Big Bang. Right. And if you think about it, especially like the soup dumpling, right. it's just a bunch of goo inside this package of a gnome. <laughs> um, so every single time when you eat a dumpling, metaphorically, you're opening up a new universe in your mouth. <laughs> and um, what's also fascinating is in the Ming Dynasty, in this book called Classic Mountain and Seas, Uh, The way that they illustrate primordial chaos was this sort of like a dumpling-looking thing that has four wings and six legs but has no face because, according to them, once they have facial expressions, the primordial chaos died and the Hmm. universe begins. I will never eat a dumpling the same way again. (laughs) Now, that's that's brilliant. I love the idea. So how did they... Emojis are, besides the actual design, yeah. are accepted or not based upon like how often people would be likely to use like the, the term dumpling as an emoji? Is, is that how they decide? 
There's a lot of deciding factors, and one of them, obviously, is the historical significance of that particular lexicon. The boba emoji, for example, it was rejected when I submitted around the same time as the dumpling, because at the time, there wasn't enough evidence to show the significance of the drink on a data level. Each year, the consortium only release certain numbers of emojis, and so they they do have to be quite selective. But the the emoji was was a very practical thing to start with, but now it's becoming something else. What is what is that something else? For sure, yeah, it's interesting. When I first designed the dumpling emoji, it was really kind of a way of self expression, and then I realized. It also encapsulates a lot of cultural identity and representation because the initial emoji design originated from Japan. It was designed for the Japanese audiences, and so there's different culture groups would look at it and they don't see themselves in the emoji representation. For example, there was no hijab woman there, and uh, also food-wise. The recent Alepa emoji, which is the Latin cornbread, that was really huge towards the Latinx folks because these are the food that they eat every day. So you must believe that emojis are more than just a little icon; that they have some more intrinsic cross-cultural meaning that, that that makes them important. Absolutely. To me, I think. Visual language is a super language. It transcends the linguistic barriers. It, in some way, really bring people together, and it's so powerful. Maybe in a hundred years we'll all just be speaking emoji. <laughs> we won't need to actually use <laughs> yeah. language. Yeah, but then again, if you think about it, in some way we are already speaking emojis. I I, I met a, a mom to be, and as soon as She knew that I designed a dumpling emoji. She was so excited, and she said, "You know, I'm just about to to have my baby, and and I've been calling it the little dumpling. So every time I send a message to my husband, I use the dumpling emoji、huh. to represent our upcoming baby. So I think people are already speaking in that language." Yiying, thank you so much. It's it's been fun and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was emoji creator Yiying Liu. She's also the arts commissioner of San Francisco. Okay, it's time for my co-host Sarah Molt and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars on Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. So, Chris, what is your favorite hot beverage? It can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. I mean coffee. I mean, what what else is there? Well, there is hot chocolate. No coffee, and I'm very particular, of course, about how it's made and everything else. But I make my own coffee in the morning, and I like it just so. Okay, tell me about your coffee. Well, I do a French press, which I've tried all the methods. I've tried the machines, and I've tried everything else, and the pour overs, and the stove top, the mocha pots. But the French press, you can control it, coarsely ground. Not too much coffee to the hot water. I only let it sit for three minutes, which is about half of what most people do, because you don't get all the bitterness. And then I put it directly into a thermos so it doesn't cool down. 
Do you grind your own beans or do you oh, have yeah. it ground? Grind your own beans. There's a roaster in Portland, Maine, actually we're friends with, and every week they send us beans. And that's really critical. What kind? I like the less roasted kind. I don't like dark roasts. I think they're much too bitter and strong. I mean, they're great for espresso, but for an American cup of coffee, I like light to medium roast. And milk or no milk? Oh, you got to have milk with coffee, yeah, because <laughs> the milk okay. sweetens it and balances it out. I know like half and half and just a little bit of sugar. Ah, okay. Well, geez, that was a nice little story about coffee. And now you get a whole recipe from me, right? Yes. Okay. Well, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Amanda. And you're calling from? And I am calling from Vassar College. How can we help you? My friend and I have been having a fight over what the best oil is to use to pan fry. He says olive oil. I say something else like a neutral oil with the higher smoke point, but we can't really resolve it on ourselves and we need answers. Well, I love this question because in Italy and other places, Spain, where they they only really have olive oil, so they use it for everything, right? I mean, that's what they have. It turns out, and we tested this not too long ago, that a refined olive oil, especially a light olive oil like Pompeian or whatever, has a very high smoke point. You know, it's around 450. So you can go ahead and deep fry in a refined olive oil. It'll be just fine. You know, the best oils in terms of smoke point get up to maybe 470 or 480. So it's perfectly respectable. And so a light, inexpensive supermarket olive oil is just great. You should also have a really good olive oil for drizzling, like for salad dressings or whatever. But yeah, go ahead. I use grapeseed oil a lot. Uh, processed olive oil is fine. Just vegetable oil is fine. But you go ahead and use it uh, if it's refined. Sarah? Well, I was going to say also in terms of sautéing, the oil gets pretty hot. But I do use, you know, not drizzling olive oil, but extra virgin olive oil. And apparently, even though extra virgin olive oil has a low smoke point, so it would never be my choice for deep frying, it tends to be more stable when heated beyond its smoke point, so it doesn't break down as quickly as other oils. I would certainly use, as Chris said, the refined olive oil for deep frying, although generally I reach for something else. But in terms of sautéing, I have no problem with extra virgin olive oil. I like the same brand I think that Chris does, which is the California Olive Ranch. But then I have a really nice, more expensive, and also just better quality Italian or whatever to drizzle with. So that's how I do it. And we also have to get over this thing about Italian olive oils, please. No, no, no. I mean, uh, my favorite olive oil comes from Lebanon, actually. So there's so many wonderful olive oils. And a lot of the Italian olive oils are from olives grown in other places anyway. Italians have great olive oil, but so do other countries in Southern Europe and around the Mediterranean. So there's no reason necessarily to buy Italian versus Lebanese, for example. I agree. There's some wonderful oils coming out of Spain, too. And as a matter of fact, Spain's one of the biggest suppliers of Italian olive oil. That was my olive oil speech, by the way. Yeah. Anyway, so go ahead. Refined olive oil's fine. It's got a nice high smoke point. Don't worry about it. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Amanda. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Scott calling from Cambridge, Mass. How can we help you? I've loved making dumplings this past year, and I've always cooked them in a nonstick skillet and added water and then put a lid on it. But my nonstick skillet does not have a lid, and I've always used the lid to my enamel-coated cast-iron Dutch oven. (laughs) The last time I did this, 
it got so stuck. I was going to say, and this it, is not going to end well. No, no, it has not ended well. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you have any advice on how I could probably get it unstuck. So the lid to the Dutch oven was slightly smaller. So it's sitting on the uh, surface of the nonstick skillet. Correct. Yeah. And what have you done to try to unstick it? Tried a lot of things. So I've heated up the pan slowly. I've right. tried putting it in the freezer. I've tried heating it up with like ice on top to heat the pan and cool the lid. Right. Nothing's really worked so far. <laughs> so the things you've tried, it would seem to me, would dislodge it if it wasn't really a powerful vacuum. Have you tried taking the equivalent of a screwdriver at the point mm-hmm. that the cover hits the skillet and try to just gently pry it open? I've tried with a butter knife. I no. can definitely get something thinner in, or I can try something thinner, but yeah. Here's the dumb thing I would do. I would get a very flat, broad screwdriver, very thin tip, and I would get a mm-hmm. wooden mallet and very gently tap it with the lowest possible angle between the skillet and the top, because I don't think heat and coal are going to solve this problem at this point. Mm. Now that may... Do we have a legal thing we can say now, Sarah, about don't try this at home? <laughs> I know, really. I don't want the call back where you're in the hospital saying, yeah, the thing flew off. I have, I have one other idea. Okay. Because I'm thinking, you know, when a top of a jar won't come off, you run it under hot water. The idea of that is heat will make it expand. The problem is you don't want the lid to expand because it's already stuck. You want the pan to expand. Uh, I think it's different than a lid that's stuck. It's a vacuum problem, which means Mm -hmm. that the pressure inside the lid is lower than the pressure outside the lid, right? You have a vacuum, Mm -hmm. and that's what's forcing it down on the pan. So the question is, what is going to reduce the vacuum? What would reduce the vacuum is if there was liquid in there that would boil and create steam, but there's no liquid in there. That's why there's a vacuum. So I think, Sarah, we're stumped. I do. I was glad you got this question, not me. <laughs> is this like a really nice Le Creuset kind of top or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, stop mm-hmm. or something. Yep. Yeah, okay. What if you turned it upside down and banged on the bottom of the pan? Or something. I can try that. Yeah. What, just to make you feel better? What, no, is that... I mean, I mean, like actually try to like uh, jerk it. Okay, here's what you got to do: turn the pan upside down, get a metal bit in your drill, and just drill a hole right in the middle of the pan, and that'll solve the problem. Throw out the pan, save the top. That's going to yeah. be the solution, right? I think you're probably right. Well, at least I can save one. <laughs> and, and, and could you please like video this process? Okay. Because I want to see this. Yeah, let us know how it goes. I will. Scott, take care. (laughs) You too. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need cooking advice, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Grant Rogers. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How old are you, if I may ask? I am 13. Good for you. How can we help you? I actually have a steak competition, and I also just like cooking steaks. Yeah. So I was wondering what like techniques and tips you have. Like I also like making different sauces for them. And then at my dad's house, I also have a sous vide. Well, my standard method is to take a thick-cut steak out of the fridge Salt it with coarse salt, 
all sides, put it on a wire rack over a, a baking sheet, let it sit for an hour, throw it into a 250 oven until the internal temperature of the steak comes up to about 90 or 95 degrees, something like that, 90 to 100. Take it out and then throw it on the grill or throw it on a griddle pan or into a cast iron pan on the stovetop. Cook it over very high heat, just very quickly, both sides get a nice sear until the temperature's up to whatever you like, 120, 125. So that would be my go-to. The sous vide's also great. The same thing, it's, you know, the oven's like a sous vide. You get it up to 95 or 100 degrees, take it out, and then finish it off with a sear. That idea of slowly bringing the temperature up also means the outside of the steak's not going to be overcooked by the time the inside's up to temperature, which is the big problem, right? And use thick steaks. Now, there's lots of other things you can do. As you said, you can do pan sauces. You could put rubs on it. Sarah, you probably have some ideas for flavoring, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to say you want to consider what steak you're going to use as well as what you're going to do to it afterwards because a really good steak makes a difference. This is a competition, so they're probably looking for something besides the method that Chris just described, which I heartily endorse. It's just an informal competition. Okay. I have a church group thing, uh-huh. and we planned some activities. And one of the activities we planned was a state competition. They mentioned they did that a while ago, and I just mentioned, oh, that's kind of cool. Because, uh, like, two nights before, I made a picanha with the demi gloss sauce. Oh, wow. Wow. Wait, that wait is, a minute. That's okay. impressive. Now, now, okay, this is the young Jacques Pepin here. This is yes. good. One of the things you could do is just come up with a fabulous spice rub, right? for the steak or, mm-hmm. or do a really powerful sauce. For example, in Milk Street, we love all these wild flavors like gochujang from South Korea or harissa. You could do a quick pan sauce with some really strong fermented sauce or chili paste that might, you know, really set yours apart. Right, Sarah? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm boring or I'm a purist. My favorite way to have a steak is finish it with some really good olive oil, squeeze of lemon juice, and some chopped right. fresh herbs. Oh, yeah. That's the Italian way. I also love herb butters. When the steak is resting, you put slices of butter, some really nicely flavored butter on top, and the butter sort of melts with the juices from the steak. Maybe do like smoked paprika. Oh, that's a good idea. Or that's chipotle. A really good idea. For me, a beautiful steak should be beautifully cooked. Yeah, and I, then I'm whatever you. you put on it, you put on it afterwards. So it's right. sort of fresh and it will mingle with the juices from the steak. There's one other trick you might try. If you mix softened butter with miso, mm. that is really good. And miso's got a real right. umami yeah. flavor. Yeah, I like that idea. All right. Do you win anything if you come out first? Um, bragging rights, pretty much. <laughs> well, well that's you know, fine. the older I get, the more I like bragging rights. Right, that's a pretty right. good thing to win. Yeah. Good for you. And the fact that you know how to make a demi-glass is pretty cool. Yeah, so. we're both very impressed. Yeah, we're big fans. Yeah. Grant, take care. It's Wishing great you good to talk luck. To you. Yeah, wish you good luck. Take okay. care, man. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're heading to Columbia with Mariana Velasquez. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with recipe developer and food stylist Mariana Velasquez about her book, Colombiana. Mariana, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much, Chris. I love Colombia. Never been there. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about it, uh, the different cultures, the different districts, etc. So, Colombia is a rather small country. You know, it's only 45 million people. But even though the area is not larger than Texas... Because of our landscape and our geography, the country is very vast in a sense. It's, um, it has all these different regions. We have the Andes going through the country from north to south. And so imagine, Chris, this is a place where you're in Bogota, for instance, and you're 9,000 feet up in the mountains. And, you know, it's cold and it's foggy and it has all these pine trees and it's a very mountain weather-like. And then you drive an hour down the road to a different altitude and you have tropicalia, warm weather. So we have all climates. We have an ocean in the Pacific side and the Caribbean side. And it's just a really rich country, you know, nature-wise, which in turn makes it for delicious and very varied food as well. You know, when I'm asked what is Colombian cooking, the answer is never short because our food is very regional. So you have the different places that really celebrate the local ingredients. And so food stays pretty local from town to town. A short answer uh, to to a very complicated (laughs) question. Um, So the indigenous population, talk about that and talk about the food that that goes with that? So we have a great food heritage from the native Colombians. You know, corn was the the base of the cuisine. And because the communities are sort of spread out from the Pacific coast, the northern side um, of the country that is with its shared border with Panama, the Amazons, the Putumayo region, the cuisine is, you know... um, I love it because the cooking methods are very rich and still super traditional, like burying food, uh, you know, like hard cuts of meat underground so that it cooks for a long time, overnight even, underground. And you have incredible preparations that they make with that, all kinds of fermented drinks like chicha and masato. And it's all, you know, it's very foraged base, which which to me is fascinating. You know, I'm in Brooklyn and when you think about walking out your door and really finding incredible varieties of yucas, of different um, cactus, fruits, herbs, and that it's also, you know, there's also a very strong medicinal culture in our indigenous communities. One of my favorite books, uh, 100 Years of Solitude, uh, you write that actually... Part of it was located in Magdalena. Could you just talk about that? Yeah, so the Magdalena River, I mean, I always say that Garcia Marquez didn't really invent anything. He really just observed because it is truly a magical place where all kinds of bizarre things happen. So the Magdalena Basin is actually lower than sea level. So it's a very warm and tropical area where there's all the banana plantations, essentially, or the banana fields. And you have the combination of native Colombians 
slaves that were brought over by the Spaniards and the colonizers centuries before. All that Syrian and Lebanese influence from immigrants that came into the country at the beginning of last century in a couple couple different groups. And then also that kind of Spanish heritage. So you have this combination of cultures, of flavor, um, of beliefs that really makes for our cuisine be pretty unique, but also the culture is based on on song. You know, it's all about storytelling. You know, how stories were told or how things were communicated were, were either by radio or by the songs that people would write to tell the tales of the towns that were nearby. It is a fascinating place. You know, I've never been asked that question and and I think about it and I, I can't wait to go back. <laughs> so you mentioned Syria and Lebanon. Your great-grandfather, Don Felix, left Beirut uh, to come to Colombia. Why were so many people emigrating from that part of the world to Colombia? Um, so there was one moment where Lebanon was taken over by Turkey and they, you know, it was just people were trying to find other ways. And Colombia became an option because for a short moment, it was one of the Latin American countries that opened its borders. And they came and they settled and they were merchants and they brought with them everything that's, you know, that exquisite taste of the Middle East, you know, eggplants, sesame, labne, which we call suero now. Right. All those ingredients that were not native to Colombia are now intrinsically part of, of our food. Uh, the Colombian pantry, uh, obviously coconut milk, uh, panela, the, the dark sugar, masa harina. But there are a few things, anato maybe, yuca flour. What, what are some of the things that you would absolutely want to have in your pantry uh, to cook out of your book? So anato, you know, or achote, the red powder, that's a great seasoning. I use it all the time and it's, it's, it's wonderful. You want to explain to people what it is and what it tastes like? Yeah, so it's essentially a seed from a flower pod that's a small shrub. And it's really flavorful. They take it out, they grind it and make it into a powder. And it tastes, it's very similar to the taste of paprika. It has that musty, deep, a little bitter taste that not only adds color, but adds a depth of flavor that's very, very minerally almost and, and, a, and a tad sweet. And I use it to prepare soups or in rice. Imagine it's like the red turmeric. It, 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 it could be right. a, a good description for it. So for arepas, uh, how do you make the dough? Because I think your technique's a little bit different than what I was used to. Yeah, so the, the traditional way of making arepas is using cracked corn or corn that you soak in lime for a very long time and then you cook it so that it gets tender. So here we sort of like cut one step and I use cracked corn I soak it and then it gets cooked until it's very soft. And then I grind it, usually using a meat grinder, one of those metal contraptions that you attach to the side of the table or the kitchen counter. And it, it, it forms into a, a great, shiny, beautiful paste. And then you form the arepas. I mean, I add some butter, in some cases oil, salt, cheese, if you like, and then you shape it into a thin cake and then it gets cooked. And is this a very specific type of corn that's used for this? Yeah, so it's usually white corn. And here in the U.S., you find it as that, as cracked corn. 
There are also all these heirloom mills that have incredible corn varieties and you can buy. There's a huge array of options that you can find. But most commonly at the grocery store, you find cracked corn that comes in a bag. And, and then there are also the sweet corn arepas, the chocola, right? Yes, and those are my favorite because oh, they're just so sweet and delicious. And the, the corn that is used is a sweet corn, is a yellow corn. And that has butter and a little bit of sugar, panela and mm. cheese. And they're really comforting. And then I add a tomato salad with avocado to top it to make it more of a brunch. Um, Suero ice cream with labne. But you want to just talk about that? So the suero ice cream, as I was saying earlier, suero is essentially the labne that we took on from the Lebanese and Syrian immigrants. And so it's now an ingrained accompaniment. Suero is always on the table. And so I wanted this mamey pie. You know, mamey is that, is that delicious, creamy, tropical fruit that reminds me of a sweet potato or, or a very ripe persimmon. So I wanted that ice cream to contrast that richness and suero, suero was perfect. So let's talk about sugar, Panela. So um, I, I've been on this crusade in the last <laughs> few years about white flour, which has no flavor, and white sugar, which is, has no flavor. And all these other cultures around the world, I mean, even in this country, there's all sorts of sugars that are less processed and have tremendous flavor. So you want to talk about panela because it, it just seems like it's a game changer if you want to just add flavor to what you're cooking. I mean, panela, so imagine sugar cane, it's taken down and it gets passed through these really strong mills and it gets crushed and all of that juice, it's filtered into these huge copper vats and it gets boiled down until it's a thick, thick, dark syrup. And it's a very artisanal process even to this day. And so the syrup takes on that incredible wood fire taste and it gets taken to a point of almost being burnt. So very, very deep caramel and then gets poured into these square or round molds until it sets and dries. So it really adds on a depth of flavor that as you say, white sugar doesn't. And to the point that we even have agua de panela, which is a little cube of panela in boiling water, and that's a beverage. You know, we add lime or ginger, <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a breakfast drink. So panela has a lot of flavor, and it could be used in baking, in savory foods, in my posta negra, which is this braised beef right. that I have. Um, it's basically what makes the sauce, the panela and wine, and it just reduces down. And it's a perfect combination of sweet and salty. You know, when I was looking at your book yesterday, I saw essentially toast with panela on it and a prosciutto. Yes. <laughs> as a snack. I ran out to the store to get prosciutto. Because <laughs> so, I go like, this, I don't know why. It just it, It's so interesting when you see a combination you've never seen before like that that sounds, oh, I uh, I'm going to have it today. Yeah. It just sounds lovely. So good. Yeah. Uh, Brisket dust. I mean, this is twice cooked brisket that ends up getting, I guess, very well cooked. And then you turn it into a dust. Could you? I, that, that's a new one on me. Yeah. So it's the perfect addition to the beans that have been stewed, to this red bean soup. 
you cook the brisket in the pressure cooker with lots of flavor. You know, you have onions, you have cilantro, you have garlic, you have um, scallions, and, and it gets cooked to tears, right, until it's very, very tender. And you put it in the food processor or the blender, and it literally turns into a powder, but a powder that has incredible taste. Hmm. It's like, like Parmesan cheese to pasta. You know, you, you dust it over the beans with the rice and with a dollop of ají, which is that really tangy vinegar sauce that we have made with cilantro and red chilies and onions. And so, yeah, it's, it's very particular to the region of Antioquia. And because nothing gets thrown away, you know, I, I feel like it's also a cuisine that saves every step, every little bit gets used in other moments. That broth from the brisket dust, I let it cool and then I skim it and it becomes the perfect hot cup of broth for winter time. So are there places in Colombia that still, it sounds like there's a huge range of places with unpaved roads on one hand and then Bogota or something on the other. So the diversity of the culture and the way people live seems particularly broad in Colombia. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Even even the way we speak, every region has its own accent and its different sayings and words for very common things. You know, I talk about el algo in the book, which is the something, you know, that afternoon snack, that little bit to keep you going. And in every region of the country, there's a different name for it. So the food also changes and the way people live is quite different. Also because the climate is so diverse. It's not the same if you're a farmer in Boyacá, high up in the mountains with your traditional wool ruanas, which are like these beautiful long ponchos, to Nuki, which is a town right on the Pacific Ocean where the jungle kisses the sea. That's a very different life. You know, the music, the way people dance, all doors are open. So it's many, many cultures within one place. My wife would live on the beach <laughs> and party, and I'd be up at 9,000 feet in the cold and rain because that's I think that's basically my personality. Um, how much have things changed in the last 20 or 30 years? And I, I know, it, you know, decades ago in Paris, people would go home for lunch, right, yeah. which they don't do much anymore, the family dinners, etc. Is Columbia changing just like every other place in the world? More, a little more slowly maybe, but it's, it's changing. It's changing. You're right that it is a little more slowly. But in rural towns, in smaller towns, people still go home for lunch. People still have a siesta. They take a nap after eating. And those traditions are still maintained. But Colombia is changing slowly. And, and it's interesting. My husband works in radio. And we always talk about how the power of radio continues to be huge in our country because there's places where literally like TV signal is hard to get. And so radio is the way you get your news. And even to this day, the main cities is more important to be on radio than to be on TV. It's more influential. Oh, Okay, I have to move to Columbia tomorrow. Exactly. Because that would be my, <laughs> my favorite way to live would be radio, not television. Um, Mariana, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Thank you. That was Mariana Velasquez. Her book is Colombiana, a rediscovery of recipes and rituals from the soul of Colombia. 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, spicy and sour julienne potato salad with Sichuan pepper. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I recently interviewed Jason Wang. He has a cookbook, Xi'an Famous Foods, which is also a restaurant or a series of restaurants in New York. And one of the recipes was a potato salad, but nothing like any potato salad I've ever made. This one is julienned potato salad. So how do they make it? So you're going to really knock the socks off the people at your next summer barbecue with this potato salad because it's nothing like anything they've ever had. There's no mayo here. And the potatoes are cut into matchsticks. So that offers a lot more surface area for the flavor of the dressing or the oil that we're going to use here. You can do this on the mandolin using the julienne blade, or you can practice your knife skills and do it with a chef's knife. We boil the potatoes until they're crisp tender, so a little bit under what you would normally do, and then toss it with vinegar, sesame oil, and sugar while the potatoes are still hot, and that will really allow those flavors to absorb into the potato. So you have vinegar, you have spicy chilies, you have Sichuan peppercorns, which are not really spicy, they're tingly, you have some paprika, you have a lot of things going on. Right. So we make a chili oil, essentially. So we've got neutral oil with those peppercorns and dried chilies, a little bit of paprika. Cook that until that oil is hot and those spices have bloomed. Then we strain out the solids and pour that over the top of the potatoes. On top of the potatoes, we put some scallion whites. So when you pour that hot oil over, it kind of almost cooks those scallion whites. And then that hot oil gets tossed with the potatoes as well. And that hot oil on scallions and or ginger is just a classic technique, right? It's a great technique that we don't use a lot here, but they use all over Asia. And it's a really great way to kind of keep the freshness of the scallions, but also soften them just a bit. So if you want to be a hero at your next picnic, you might try the spicy and sour julian potato salad with Sichuan pepper. Lynn, thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for spicy and sour julienned potato salad with Sichuan pepper at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, it's Adam Gopnik on the Dinner Revolution. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Pete McDonough from Pennington, New Jersey. I have a tip for buttering ears of corn. Take a slice of bread, cut it into quarters, and put one pat of butter on each quarter. Use that quarter of the bread to smear the butter on your corn, and then eat the bread when you're done. No messy knife, no messing up the whole stick of butter, no mess, no fuss, and it's great. Just like Jersey corn, the best there is. Bye. By the way, if you'd like to share your own advice or cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, let's find out what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, how are you doing? I am well, Chris. How are you? Good. What's on your mind this week? I had my daughter and her friend, Tanya, here in the house for the past week or so, and I noticed something very different between my basic expectations of eating and dining and theirs. They are what I think is called late millennials, and don't ask me to distinguish a late millennial from a Generation Z or much less a Generation Xer. I am a late boomer, and they are late millennials. And I still begin every day, being the cook of the house and the food obsessive, thinking about what we are going to have for dinner. And when I am thinking about what we are going to have for dinner, what I mean by that is what will be the chief protein that sits on the plate and what will sit around it. So I say, annoyingly early, at 8 a.m. or so, darling, what would you and Tanya enjoy for dinner? Would you like some chicken or some fish or a pasta? And they look at me with dull, blank stares, (laughs) not merely of distaste, but of a certain kind of pitying dislike, because I don't understand how it is that human beings eat. And I take it for granted that that's the way human beings eat. You take something, a significant protein, you put it on your plate, cooked one way or another, and you embroider, decorate, supplement it with other dishes. What they want for dinner is, first of all, not dinner. 
They want to have a host of small dishes that get spread out through the night. They nibble on this and they nosh on that. And it can be, oh, pretty much anything. It can be chickpeas with a chopped parsley and jalapeno salad. Or it could be, oh, a pasta with uh, ginger and spiced beef. But whatever it is, they don't want a lot of it. And they want a lot of things coming at them in small doses one by one. Well, I have a key question here, which yes. is lots of cultures, you know, meze, for example, in the Middle East, Turkish culture, other places, that's not uncommon. But I wonder if you're also saying they don't actually want to sit down and have a meal. They want to graze over time. Is that true as well? Well, with your usual celerity and clarity, you have anticipated and indeed rather canceled my next point, which is that this is exactly, Chris, this is the planetary norm. This is how most people eat in most places most of the time. It is true that it's tied in my daughter's uh, late millennial habits, as it is in most of planetary cooking, to um, not being fixed to a particular time to eat, but seeing eating as an ongoing event through the day. What's striking to me is that that habit has now become the norm for the first time in my lifetime anyway, for a whole generation. And I got to thinking, Chris, about what caused this planetary transformation. Two things particularly came to mind. You mentioned Metze, which is certainly part of it, but I think even more directly was the tapas revolution. Right. But I, I got to say something about that. The tapas is food eaten at a bar, cafe, right. and then you would actually go have dinner. And Metze, you're still sitting there with family with lots of plates on the table. It's still a group experience. So even though I know we're both quasi-philosophers, I think it's okay to pass judgment here. Can I do that? Please. Can I just say? Please. Can I just say? That judge, the, judge. The, the early or late millennials have it wrong. Food has to be consumed with other people around the table, no matter what's on the plate, right? Well, as you know, I wrote an entire book called The Table Comes First, which, as you may recall, was on the theme that what right. mattered most was the human energy around the table rather than the products on the table. And I still believe that's true. But this generation of Americans, and I suspect it's broader than Americans, has put together from tapas, from let's say from all kinds of things, their own new style of eating. They eat together, but they eat in bursts rather than in a you know, bonanza of eating. I think another thing that fed into that new form was the sushi craze, right? Because sushi is a form of food that demands a different kind of time. But here's the fascinating thing in terms of what you were just saying. I did the thing that philosophers should never do. I sat down and I asked my daughter and her friend Tanya why they ate the way they ate. What they said to me I thought was interesting. They said it's part of a larger sensibility that's generational. They believe in compartmentalization and in choice. Their hmm. lives are compartmentalized in lots of ways. They're politics, education, sex, they're all things that they can often pursue quite separately. They like to keep things compartmentalized, huh. and they passionately believe in choice. Huh. And having a gustatory choice is hugely important to them. And what I see as generosity, what shall we have for dinner tonight, they experience as coercion. They experience huh. as, I will close you in on the thing that I have chosen, and you will have no choice but to share it. Of course, it's the classic tyranny and dictatorship of the French chef. Here is what we're having, and here's what you will eat. I can say two things. 
you're free to come up to Boston and live with me <laughs> and ask the question eight in the morning, what would you like for dinner? Because we'd be very happy to have you. <laughs> and secondly, the next time your daughter looks at you with sad, doleful <laughs> eyes, it may have nothing to do with your menu choice. <laughs> Just keep that in mind. <laughs> oh, that goes without saying that you always are looked at with sad and doleful eyes. Yes, you you are. are always the most embarrassing, ridiculous, and annoying human being yes. on earth. And you make coercive demands yes. for dinner. All of those things without question flow together. The best we can hope for from our children, I've often said, is pity and tolerance. And we know that because that's the best we ever give our parents. But I do think the, call it what you will, the sensibility of compartmentalization and choice that they were articulating for me really is a generational change. Our generation, my generation at least, we were less obsessed with choice, it seems to me, than with celebrating excellence. We wanted to go out into the world and find out what the best thing was. A French cooking first with Julia and then with Italian cooking with Marcella. And we made our way around the world in that way. They begin with the fact of choice. And all they want to do is fet it, is to carry it on. And so, I'm sure you'll be glad to know, Chris... I have zipped my lip, and I no longer demand every morning, what would you like for dinner? I simply bustle around in the interstices of writing, make a little of this and a little of that, and sometime, vaguely around 7 o'clock, I start to share it. I don't like choice very much, but my kids do, as do yours. And now you've explained why they don't (laughs) eat my food. Thank you. Oh, delighted to do it. (laughs) That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.